We are in a series now we've been going through for a couple of years now. We started back in January 2021, if you can believe it, uh, through the books of Samuel. So originally, First and Second Samuel were one book in Hebrew. When they translated it into Greek, they split it up into two sections because it didn't all fit on one scroll. So we started in First Samuel, now we're in Second Samuel, and we're almost done. Okay, we're almost at the end. We're in chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, why don't you grab them, uh, open up to 2 Samuel 19. We're going to start in verse 8, kind of a first 8, verse 9, right around there. And then we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Um, and what we do here at Zoe normally is we just open up the Bible, we read it, and we explain what it means. Uh, it's called expository teaching or preaching. Um, but with the books of Samuel... Um, the passages are really long. So what we've been doing, and they're, they're narratives, okay, they're, they're told as history or stories. So we've been reading them as we go along. So once you get there, I'm not going to read it yet. Okay, we'll keep the suspense up a little bit. Let me pray, and then we'll get into it. So 2 Samuel 19, we'll start in verse 8, but let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that we could be here this afternoon. God, even singing about how sovereign you are over everything that happens in our lives. And we know, we know, Father, that we can trust you, that you have called us to trust you. And yet, it's not the easiest thing for us. So God, I pray that you would help us. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in the times where it's hard for us to trust you and to have faith. And God, I pray that as we open up your word today, God, I pray that we would remember and that you would teach us, uh, teach us again that faith actually comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So I pray that you would meet us as we open up your word. I pray that you would speak through it, that you would use me, God, and I pray that this time would be beneficial for all of us, God, that you would give us faith, that you would grow our faith, God, that you would draw us closer to you. God, we pray that you would do during this time what only you can do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard the saying, the phrase, heavy is the head that wears the crown? Let me tell you a story, and you might know this story. But once upon a time, there was a young orphan boy named Wart, and he lived with his adopted family. Now, he was of common birth, okay, even though he was adopted. His, his family that he was born into was common, and he seemed destined for nothing more than a common life. But then one day, one day when his brother, who was training to be a knight, was going to be knighted, and they were all there at the ceremony, and Wart was just a side character in this story, they discovered that his brother forgot his sword, back where they were staying. So they obviously they sent Ward to go fetch it as a servant boy. He runs back to find the sword and he can't find it anywhere. He's looking for any sword now. He's running around and then he sees in this churchyard a sword that is stuck in a stone. And he runs over in a panic because he needs a sword. He runs over and he grabs the sword and the stone and he pulls it out. And then he takes it to where his family is. And when he gets there, they are astounded by what they see. The only person who could pull the sword from the stone was the true king of England. And you might know this story again. He was the true king. Ward's real name was Arthur. And normally this is where the story ends. 
In fact, in the Disney movie, The Sword in the Stone, this is where it ends. He becomes the king, and that's kind of it. The main story is him growing up to this moment. But this is only the first book out of four in T.H. White's The Once and Future King. There are three more books. And if you read the rest, what we read is that Arthur does lead well at first. He establishes the Knights of the Round Table. You know about this. He orders his kingdom around the ideals of chivalry and honor. He leads the nation into a golden age. He marries the beautiful Guinevere, and they start a family. But again, the story isn't over. Arthur has an affair, which he deeply regrets. And a child is born out of it, a son named Mordred, who grows up to resent and hate his father. His wife, Guinevere, she falls in love with his best friend, Lancelot, and they betray him. And as Arthur's family falls apart, we see that he struggles to keep the kingdom, to keep Camelot together as well. Now, okay, the reason why I bring up this story, the reason why I tell it to you so quickly is because I think it's important for us to understand that Arthur, even though he's the true king, He is supposed to be king. He wears the crown. And yet his own failures and the weakness of those around him make the peace and prosperity of Camelot as tenuous as the flame of a candle in the wind. And this is what it means to be king. This series that we're going through about David, we've called it King of Kings. This is about the beginning of the kingdom of Israel, how it started. This is what it means to be king, though. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that everyone does what you want all the time, even if they should. What it means is that at the end of the day, you are the one who bears the responsibility for better or for worse. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Now, again, I said we've been in First and Second Samuel for two years at this point. And they record for us the history of the beginning of the kingdom in Israel. And we've seen a young boy named David seemingly destined for nothing more than a common life, anointed by the prophet Samuel, chosen specifically by God to be the true king of Israel. And if you were with us, you saw that David did lead well, at least at first. He defeats the giant Goliath with nothing more than a slingshot. He survives the murderous attacks of Saul, the previous king. And he eventually unites the kingdom of Israel, all 12 tribes, and he leads them into a golden age. But then he has an affair, which he deeply regrets. And one of his sons, born to a different wife, but one of his sons, Absalom, whom we spent a lot of time with over the past few months, he grows to resent and hate his father, and he even attempts to overthrow him. And finally, last chapter, we saw the climactic finish of the Absalom story arc. He was killed in a battle by Joab, David's longtime general. And after last week, you might be thinking, okay, phew, glad that's over with, glad everyone survived. But have you ever heard the other phrase, it ain't over till it's over? It's not over. The story didn't end in 2 Samuel 18 or the beginning of 19. David is still king, and now he must deal with all the fallout. He has to deal with a fractured nation. Many people chose to follow Absalom right before this. And though some proved faithful, when David looked like he was on his way out, a lot of other people showed their true colors. Close friends, he thought they betrayed him. 
Other people who kind of kept their real feelings under wraps decided to kind of come out with their hatred of him when they felt like he had no more power. And now his son is dead. But the verse we ended on last week showed us that David, he had to wipe the tears from his eyes. There was no time to just mourn and cry and be sad. The nation needed its king. So he got up and he walked over to where his seat was and he sat down before the people as the king. Because even though he was broken, he still had a crown to wear. And that's what we're talking about today. Not just kings in distant lands or made up kings like Arthur. We're talking about responsibility. We're talking about responsibility and how difficult it can be to wear the crown. And I know, okay, none of us here are the Lord's anointed. Sorry to break it to you. None of us here wear a real crown, at least. You might think that you're like a queen of your house or whatever. But we all wear different hats, okay, so to speak. We all have God-given roles and responsibilities, and they don't just stop. Okay, you understand this. If you're someone who understands your responsibility, your responsibility doesn't stop just because things are hard or because something sad happened to you or because life got difficult. They don't end when we're tired and exhausted. They're not over until they are over. I mean, okay, let's just make it practical. If you're a parent, if you're a parent, your kids need you. Whether or not you had a bad day or not, whether or not you feel like being a parent today or not, whether or not you're tired, if you're a husband or wife, you're still married and accountable to your vows, even after a stretch of really hard weeks or months. If you're a student, if you're a boss, if you're a leader in any capacity, if you're even just a Christian, okay, you have a stewardship entrusted to you by God, and there are people counting on you. There are things you need to do. And you will have to answer, as the scripture reading said, to God eventually for all the things that he has given to you to bear. And as you know, it's not always easy. So what we see here today is a king whose kingdom is fragile. And we see a king whose failures have just piled up. But as long as he wears the crown, and he still does, he has a responsibility before God to lead well. And God isn't done with him yet. So let's get into it. And okay, today it's a large chunk of text. Okay, I'm just going to warn you. We'll break it up into three parts as we normally do, but it doesn't exactly break down super neatly. Okay, so kind of the meat of this text in the center, it's three encounters. So that does break down neatly. Three encounters that David has with three people from his past. So that'll be kind of the backbone of our outline today. But On the front end and on the back end, there are these kind of summary sections where they talk about just how crazy things are in Israel. So we will do what we got to do. We'll go through every single verse, but it won't be quite as neat as you want. um, So just bear with us. So it'll be a beginning section, then his encounter with Shimei, then Mephibosheth, then Barzillai. If you don't remember who these people are, I'll tell you in a little bit. And then it'll be another thing about kind of the, the situation of the kingdom. Okay, so... I know you can handle it. Okay, so let's just get into it. You're here for expository preaching, so exposit, I will. So let's get into it. Three encounters, three points. First, first point, the amnesty. The amnesty. Now, an amnesty, what is that? It's a word that starts with an A. That's why I chose it. No, it's an official pardon. Okay, it's an official pardon for people guilty of an offense, a political offense. It's an official action. Okay, remember this. 
Okay, this point is about what it means to have responsibility before God. You need to do what's right, even if you don't feel like it. So let's pick up in verse 8. Chapter 19, verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now, every, uh, now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Now, a couple of notes here. Israel, okay, it's the name of the entire kingdom, the whole nation. But because Absalom rebelled, now things are split. So when it says Israel here, it's talking about everyone else who didn't stay with David. They went with Absalom. There are two sides, Israel, and then there are the servants of David, this ragtag group of people from all over the place who decided to stick with David, the original king. Now the battle is over, but the civil chaos continues. The people recognize all David did for them, but they also, they just anointed another king. Okay, they put all their weight behind Absalom. Now, David ran away, so then, you know, they were under Absalom's rule now, but Absalom's dead, David's coming back, what are they going to do? And it seems like there is no consensus here. Some people are saying, remember all that David did. Other people are saying, but we anointed Absalom. Can we just welcome David back in? So there's a lot of arguing, a lot of debates. The nation is fractured and divided, verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Say to the elders of Judah... Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should, uh, why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. That's the river. So David is the king. The beginning of verse 11 emphasizes that King David. And he must act even though he'd rather mourn because the kingdom, his responsibility is in a precarious situation. So understand the gist of his strategy. What he's going to do to unite the kingdom is first to get his own tribe on his side. Now remember, okay, Israel is 12 tribes. Judah is David's own tribe. And Judah is also the biggest and most powerful. Sometimes a couple other tribes were big too. But Judah is the most powerful tribe in Israel. The only problem is... And if you're thinking about it, the only problem is Absalom is David's son, which means that Judah was also Absalom's tribe. And if you read back a little bit, you see that Absalom was anointed king in Judah. So there are problems here. So David, what he does is he has the priests who are the spiritual leaders of all Israel talk to the leaders of Judah specifically on his behalf. He wants people they'd respect to appeal to their loyalty. Your family. Let's talk. Let's, let's, let's make this work. And David, he also makes other moves. He replaces Joab with Amasa as the general of the army. And there are probably multiple reasons for this. One, Joab just killed his son, even though he told him not to. 
Okay, so there's something a little, a little personal here with this second. Amasa is actually David's nephew as well, okay, on another side of the family. So there's a connection, your bone and flesh. And then third, Amasa was the leader of Absalom's army. So this is a way to bridge the gap between the pro-Absalom faction over here and the pro-David faction. See, in the wake of civil war or near civil war, David, he's doing things to unite the kingdom. And David, okay, understand, David is good at this kind of stuff. David was gifted to be king. Saul was a little bit of a doofus. I hate to say such a word. In the Hebrew, it says that. But Saul, uh, David, on the other hand, he's good. He's always been good at, at winning people over and at leading and at making disparate people unite. He's the kind of person who wins you over to his side and Judah returns to him. What a wonderful ending to the story. He rides off into the sunset. All the problems are, that's not it. Okay, the story isn't over. David, he solves problems. That's good, but there are more problems. In fact, he's creating more problems here, which we'll see in a little bit, maybe in the next couple of weeks. How do you think Joab's going to feel about being replaced by a traitorous other general? Joab has been loyal this whole time, and Joab is not afraid to kill people. Things are going to be messed up within their own ranks. And what we'll see, too, is that there are divisions between Judah and the rest of the tribes. And this supposed favoritism, David going to Judah first, it makes sense. And yet the rest of the tribes aren't going to be that happy about this. David's going to have basically nonstop problems from here on out till the end of this book. Spoiler alert. But heavy is the head that wears the crown. Now, okay, this was all prologue, okay? This was all set up for the three encounters I was telling you about, three very personal one-on-one encounters that David has with these people from his past, but it's not unrelated, okay? You got to understand this. It's all about how King David handles responsibility being the Lord's anointed. He has to do it politically, kind of big picture, but in these encounters, we see personally he has to handle being king as well, so... The first point, I called it the amnesty, not because of this context, but because of this first encounter with a guy named Shimei. Now, who is Shimei? Okay, I don't know a lot of people who say their favorite Bible character is Shimei. You might have forgotten about him. But the thing is, when David was on the run, when Absalom was on his way to take over Jerusalem, Shimei just came out of the woodwork. When everyone's fleeing and crying, David's with his family. Shimei is this guy who's pretty well-to-do, and he's of the house of Saul, and he's been kind of keeping his pro-Saul sentiments quiet for a while, pretending that he's cool with David being king. But once David looks like he's powerless, he comes out, he starts cursing everybody, he's throwing rocks at David. In fact, in 2 Samuel 16, 7, he says, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. In front of David's wives and kids, his loyal men, And the reason he hated David was because he felt like Saul should have been king this whole time. Now, verse 16, same guy. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Now, listen to this. And Shimei, the son of Girah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, the king. Now, 
All right, it's possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. It is possible that over the past few days, all right, Shimei was praying a lot and he was convicted, all right? I shouldn't have said those things. Even though I felt strongly, I should not have cursed the Lord's anointed. I have sinned. And he's been waiting, hoping that David survives so that he can meet him and bring him back and apologize. But come on, bro. Like, that's not what happened. That's not what's happening here. That's the case. The timing would be awfully convenient. It's pretty obvious what's happening. Shimei is a coward. Okay. He only spoke up when he thought that David could not retaliate. Now David's back and Shimei's trying to save his own skin. He knows that uh, David's going to remember what happened. So he's going to come down and make this big showy apology in front of everybody. You can imagine David's army, right? You can imagine how they feel about this. They remember Shimei walking alongside them and their family shouting curses and throwing rocks. Now he's coming back and he's all like, don't take it to heart or hate it. I didn't even mean it really. Come on. I mean, now it's time to get this guy. It's payback time. And this is exactly what Abishai is thinking. Verse 21, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah answered, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? I mean, you can understand how he's thinking. He's like, he cursed the Lord's anointed. He basically cursed God. Okay, if you're cursing God's king, you're cursing God. Let me just take his head. It won't be that hard. I'll just kill him right now. And look, okay, maybe you've never been in this exact situation. But if you've ever been betrayed in any way, insulted, kicked when you were down, and then you saw this person later, and they're all like apologizing only because they got caught, right? Not because they're actually sorry, You understand the temptation here, the temptation to not forgive, to get even, to not accept the apology. And your friends might even gas you up. Verse 22, but David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not, do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So David turns to his nephew, Abishai, Joab's brother, and he says, why are you being an adversary to me? And we're like, wait, what is going on here, right? He's just sticking up for you. Shimei, if anyone's the adversary, it's Shimei. And you think that it's crazy. And then if you look in the Hebrew, you find out that it's even crazier. When he says, why are you being an adversary to me? The word he's using here for adversary is actually in Hebrew, the word for Satan. Why are you being Satan to me? Now, he's not calling him the devil. Okay, He's not calling him Lucifer, but he's using the same term because the word Satan, okay, it's not the name of Satan. Do you guys understand this? It's a word used to describe him. Okay, it's, it means the adversary or the accuser. And that's the role that he takes. He is the adversary to God's people and to God. He is the one who accuses. So right here, he says, why are you being an accuser or adversary to me? And understand that he doesn't say of me. He says to me. He's not accusing David of anything. What he's doing is he's accusing Shimei of something. He's not accusing David of being something. Rather, he's accusing Shimei of being deserving of death. He's tempting David. Abishai is tempting David to retaliation. He's tempting him to take it personally. See, he's saying, listen, what Shimei did, he deserves death. But the truth is, Okay, if you actually look at the law, it's not a capital offense to curse the king. It is very annoying. It could be very hurtful. It is wrong. 
Don't get me wrong. It is wrong. But the law never says, if you curse the king, then you deserve to die. There are certain sins that you can commit where you deserve to die, but that's not one of them. Put aside David's personal feelings. It's not right to do what Abishai says he wants to do. It's also against custom. You didn't kill people on the day of victory in Israel. That's not what you did. And remember, as king, David has an agenda. This is why it starts this way. The passage, he needs to unite the kingdom. So killing an apologetic Shimei in front of a thousand of his brethren, the men of Benjamin, would do more harm than good when it came to peace in Israel. See, this is what David's talking about when he says, why are you being an accuser to me? He's saying, why are you tempting me? Okay, why are you trying to accuse this guy of something that he in fact is not guilty of, even though he's guilty of a lot of things? So what David does is he puts aside that temptation. He puts aside the urge to get even with Shimei. He puts aside how he personally feels. And of course he wants to kill this guy. This guy is so annoying. But he does what he knows he should do for the good of the kingdom. He extends amnesty to Shimei. It's an official pardon. And look, okay, this point is getting long already. It's the longest point, I'm just telling you. But this is the tension. You got to understand, this is the tension we experience so often. You say, what do you mean? The tension between what we feel like doing on the one hand and what we know we should do on the other. This tension shows up in a million different ways in our lives. It's not always a guy who cursed us to our face, but this tension, this tension is common. And this is the tension that responsibility entails. This is the tension that responsibility requires of us, requires of us. Let me, it reminds me of the story I heard. I remember I heard a guy from New York share about how New York is just so stressful. And I've only been there one time, so I don't really know. But he said every day he'd come home from work and he would just be mentally and emotionally and even physically just tired, just walking fast and just the hustle and bustle of the city. But then he had kids. And so what he decided to do every day was before he walked into his apartment, because he can't afford a house in New York, right? Before he walked in, he would stand in the hallway and he would mentally like prepare himself to be a father. He said, I want to just leave New York outside the door because he said, what my kids need isn't an exhausted, angry New Yorker. What they need is a loving and present father. So he chose to do what he knew he must do, even though he felt tired and irritable. Do you see that there's a tension here? He felt a certain way, but he knew that being a father required something of him. And again, this point is long, so let me get right down to it. Sometimes we're not going to feel like doing the right thing. Actually, if you try to do the right thing, you know this. A lot of times the right thing is the harder thing to do. And we'll have people who will essentially tempt us to do the wrong thing, to give in to what feels easier. But here's the question I'm going to ask you. What has God called you to? What does the Lord require of you? As fathers, as mothers, as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters, as friends, as Christians. It doesn't always feel easy to be present, to be intentional, to be servant-hearted, but what does God want you to do? There's a tension between what we feel like doing and what we know we should do. 
and what it means to be faithful to the stewardship that God has given us, whatever role or responsibility we might have is to choose what we should do over what we feel like doing in the moment. And I'm not saying be a hypocrite. Okay. Being a hypocrite means to wear a mask, to pretend you're something you're not. What I'm saying is make the harder choice. If it's the right choice. And it is a choice. Galatians 5.13, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, being a servant is rarely fun, for example. Think about what a servant is. You don't get thanked as a servant. You have to do stuff other people don't want to do. That's what Christians are called to. David here, he pardoned Shimei. And did you hear the words he used? He said, you shall not die. Where have we heard that before? Verbatim. Do you remember this? After David committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had Uriah, her husband, killed off, Nathan the prophet confronted him. Do you remember this? He thought he got away with it, but God saw, God sent Nathan. Nathan confronted him and David repented to his credit. And what did Nathan say? What was the word of the Lord? You shall not die. You shall not die. Do you think David forgave Shimei because it was easy for him to do so? I don't think so. He forgave Shimei. He pardoned him. He extended amnesty. Why? Because he was forgiven himself. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, as God forgave you, not because it's easy. Do what needs to be done. That's part of what it means to have the responsibility. There's something you need to do. God has given it to you. You got to do it even if it feels hard. And it matters. Not only will we stand in judgment, but it affects other people. And I remember that father was sharing about how one time he was standing in the hallway and he was kind of giving himself that pep talk. Okay, just leave New York outside. And then he ran into his neighbor. His neighbor ran into him. Kind of a rough guy, he said. And he said, hey, you good? Like, you're talking to yourself? Like, everything okay? And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I, this is just what I do sometimes, you know, with my kids. I just need to leave New York at the door. And the guy visibly softened. And he said, you know, that's really cool. I wish my dad had done something like that for us. The amnesty, you got to understand, it's about doing the right thing, even if it doesn't feel easy. Second point, second point. We'll move quicker. The adjustment. The adjustment. Which is about doing the best you can with what you have. Sometimes that's all you can do. Now, we see David's encounter with a man named Mephibosheth. We first met him a long time ago. In fact, I wasn't even here. It happened when I was on sabbatical. So I don't even know what Eric said. Hopefully something good. But more recently, Mephibosheth's servant Ziba threw Mephibosheth under the bus, okay, when David was leaving. He said, basically, he's abandoned you. He's gone after Absalom. Now we find out the other side of the story, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed till the day he came back in safety. Now, Mephibosheth, he arrives, and while he is called the son of Saul here, he's not Saul's son, okay? He's Jonathan's son. He's Saul's grandson, and when Jonathan died, David's best friend, David sought out one of his relatives. Is there anyone from the house of Jonathan that I could show kindness to? And he found Mephibosheth, 
And Mephibosheth, he was not at battle because he was crippled in his feet. He couldn't walk. And you might remember the story. David showed him tremendous kindness. I mean, Jonathan was his best friend, but you got to understand that Mephibosheth is the heir to Saul's throne. Okay, he's of the enemy house, but David doesn't care about that. He brings him into his own home. He treats him as his own son, lets him eat at his own table. But when David was on the run, Ziba said, Mephibosheth spit on all of that. And now he wants to go after Absalom. He said that he's excited that Absalom is here. Maybe he will get his rightful kingdom back. And David was understandably sad about this, maybe even angry. And he told Ziba, he said, look, you can have everything that I gave Mephibosheth. But now Mephibosheth is here. And judging by the looks of him, the story wasn't quite what Ziba said. He hasn't taken care of his feet. He hasn't shaved. He's all like dirty and like not looking that good. And this, this shows that he was mourning, okay, that he was sad. This is what you do when you lost like a loved one or something. You would just stop taking care of yourself. Okay, now you can fake some of this. You could wear like dirty clothes and stuff, go to the laundry basket, whatever. But he didn't fake like growing the beard out and some of that stuff. So it looks like that, it looks like things are the opposite of what Ziba said. Ziba said he was all happy. He's going after Absalom. That's why he stayed in Jerusalem. But Mephibosheth shows up looking all like downcast. And this would have been dangerous because he was showing Absalom that he actually was sad David left. So there's two sides to this story. Verse 24, David wants to know from his own mouth what's going on. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Just right to the point. He answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king for your servant is lame. So what he's saying is, what he's saying here basically, it's a little confusing how he words it. But what he's saying is, when I heard about what was happening, I told Ziba to saddle me a donkey so I could go with you. But Ziba didn't do it. Ziba, what he did was he just went by himself, left me here because I can't walk. You know, I can't do these things on my own. And he lied about me to get ahead, to take advantage of the situation. Verse 27. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? So, okay, understand here that he's showing David extreme deference. He, he is the son of royalty himself, but he keeps calling David, his Lord, the king again and again. And he doesn't argue his case. He just says, this is what happened. You decide. I'm sure you'll make the right decision. In fact, he calls him the angel of God. Do you see that? Several times throughout the Old Testament, someone called the angel of God shows up. He says, you're like that person. Now, we know, we know about angels, right? We know about an angel from God appeared and sent a message. Angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. But in the Old Testament, sometimes the angel of God appears. Okay, the angel. Now, when we think angel, we might think like a supernatural creature or like a heavenly being in some ways. And that is true to a certain extent. But angel literally just means messenger. And sometimes the messenger from God appears. And what's really interesting is that sometimes they call this messenger of God, the messenger, the angel, they call him God himself. They call him God himself. Now, he's distinct from God. And yet he also is called God. He is the messenger. 
Any light bulbs going off here? It sounds like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word of God was with God and also is God. He is distinct from the Lord, but also the Lord. It seems pretty clear, actually, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate son of God. Is Jesus Christ before he was born in a manger, if you get what I'm saying. So all this to say, we don't know exactly what Mephibosheth, if he knew this stuff or understood it, but we can know what he's getting at. He's saying, essentially, I know your judgment is just like the angel of God's judgment. Your judgment is like God's. It's a very humble thing to say, don't you think? I mean, he is grandson of Saul. To recognize that God's anointed, the one that God chose, over your grandfather and over your father and over you to recognize that he rules on behalf of God and to submit to him. The only problem is it's not really true. Okay. Even if he feels this way, I mean, we said this before David at his best, he gives us unique insight into who Jesus is. Jesus being not just the son of God, but the promised son of David. But we've also said that at his worst, David, more than anyone, shows us how much we need Jesus. I mean, has, I mean, if you think about just recently, has David's judgment been on par with God's? Has David even been making mostly good decisions lately? David, for all his wisdom, cannot see beneath the surface. He can't look at the heart. He cannot be perfect. He already gave Ziba everything because he believed Ziba's story. Now it seems like Mephibosheth is telling the truth, but he can't know for sure because Ziba did help him. Ziba did support him in his time of need. It's a mess. And it's a situation that can't be solved perfectly. If he gives Mephibosheth nothing and sticks with his original decision, that's messed up. But if he goes back on Ziba now, just because he's heard the other side, if he flip-flops, that's also kind of messed up because Ziba did nothing but provide for him. And here he faces another situation where a poor decision could lead to more division. So what does he do? Well, more talking isn't going to help, verse 28, or verse 29, excuse me. And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my Lord, the King has come safely home. So what does he do? He adjusts, he adjusts his previous decision, not keep it, not go back on it. Instead, split it 50, 50. And Mephibosheth, he's cool with it. He recognizes the grace the King has already shown him. But look, the situation, it shows the limitations of the King. He can't be everywhere at once. He can't know everything for sure. And he can't be a perfect judge. He doesn't even know if what Mephibosheth is saying here is real or if he's just flattering him. Right? Oh, I don't need this stuff. Is that what he means? Or is he secretly kind of angry about what happened? So what does he do? He just decides and he lives with it. Now, let me ask you before we move on. Have you ever had analysis paralysis? Do you know what I'm talking about? where you don't know what to do exactly. You feel like every single way you go is not going to be perfect. So you just don't, you just don't move. You're frozen. Okay. You keep turning things over and over in your mind. You have like a pros and cons list that you're like writing out and they're like equal. Do you struggle with regrets? Do you have a hard time making big decisions? 
See, building on the first point, we all have different responsibilities. We're all accountable before God to do what's right, regardless of how we feel at any given moment. However, the reality is, it's very difficult. The reality is we can't be perfect. You know, I remember when I was a younger Christian, I was listening to this preacher, this guest preacher preach, and he quoted Martin Luther and he said, as Martin Luther once said, sin boldly. Sin boldly. I was like, what? I never heard that. Did you even say that? Right? Like, was that in I have a dream speech? Just kidding. That's a different Martin Luther. Um, But I was wondering when he said that because it sounded like what he was saying was just go sin, right? Like go do it and be happy about it. It sounded like permission to do wrong. Turns out that's not exactly what Martin Luther said. I want to read to you the full quote, and it's a little long, but I want you to hear the context, and I want you to be stretched a little, okay? Theologically and intellectually, too. It's good for Christians to level up, okay? So I'm going to read this longer longer quote, but I think you can handle it. Okay, this is the quote. If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. And this is the section right here. He said, be a sinner and let your sins be strong or bold, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter, are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard for you are quite a sinner, end quote. Now, there was a lot in that, but in context, Luther is not encouraging us to sin. No, he's saying, rather, be honest. Don't sin with impunity, but when you do sin, sin with honesty. It'd be better not to sin at all, but that's not the world we live in. So just be real about it. Don't pretend that you can be perfect. And because you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, now you are free. You are free to try to live as faithfully and as boldly for God as you can. It's the opposite of analysis paralysis. See, when Luther says sin boldly, what he really is getting at is to live boldly. You will sin. You will make mistakes. You will fail. And it's not okay. But that's why Jesus died for you. So keep moving forward. And beloved, right? God knows that you're not perfect. He knows you're not. He calls you to faithfulness, but he also provided for you inexhaustible grace. So if you feel overwhelmed in life, if you feel like you can't do everything that needs to be done as a parent, as a spouse, as a manager at work, in church, wherever it is, join the club. It's all of us. And then as Luther said, pray hard for you are quite a sinner. Hebrews 4 says that God, Jesus, he can sympathize with our weaknesses in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Just do the best with what you're given. That's all you can do in reality. And sometimes what you got to do is just admit that you got it wrong last time and try to adjust as well as you can. 
Sometimes your adjustments are not going to be perfect. Just keep moving forward. You will make mistakes as a parent. You'll make mistakes in marriage, in church, at work, in every single way, every single arena. But like David, try to course correct as best as you can. And also like David, just recognize it's not going to be perfect. And that's why Jesus died for us. Life is continual repentance. Life is continual prayer. Why? Because we need it. And the more you take seriously the responsibilities God has given you, the more you'll pray. I guarantee this. Last point, the acknowledgement. We'll do it in two minutes. The acknowledgement. We won't, though. We won't. Which is about acknowledging and really appreciating the help we get. This last point is a reminder of how God provides in our time of need. Verse 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Ragalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. So Barzillai, okay, he comes to visit him, and it didn't get a lot of space in Scripture, but we saw in a verse or two that when David was down and out in the wilderness, he had nothing. Barzillai and a few others came and gave him stuff. They gave him food and supplies, verse 33. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my Lord, the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. Okay, so real quick, David wants to reward Barzillai, but Barzillai says, no, I'm good fam. I'm old, right? It's all good. I didn't do it for a reward. And you can see his heart here. He humbly calls David uh, himself David's servant. He says, if you're going to bless anybody, bless my servant, Chimham, whoever he is. We don't even know who he is. He could be like a son, relative, servant. It could be anybody. Verse 38. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the king went over the Jordan, or all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. So Chimham goes, David is grateful, Barzillai, he came to help, and now he is on his way. But though Barzillai goes home, his presence and the presence of Chimham now, they remind David of something important. They remind him that he does, in fact, have support. It's very easy to get into a groove of thinking, okay, no one cares about me. No one supports me. I'm overwhelmed. Responsibility is lonely. No one, no one helps. No one is even thinking about me. In fact, one of the more interesting stories in the Bible is about this. If you remember Elijah, right? Elijah, the great prophet, Okay, there was a time when he gave up. Do you remember this? Elijah might be the greatest prophet. And kind of his height of ministry was when he set up this challenge against the prophets of Baal. This takes place way after David. Okay, when Ahab is king and his wicked wife Jezebel, and they are worshiping other gods like Baal. And and they have all these priests and prophets. And Elijah is like the lone prophet for God. And he sets up this altar and he says, you guys build an altar too. And we will both pray. And whoever answers, whatever God answers with fire from heaven, that's the true God. 
So you know it, right? 400 prophets of Baal, they're all singing and dancing and praying to Baal and nothing happens. And then Elijah, he, he has this altar, the sacrifice, he even pours all this water over it to make it hard to burn. And then he prays to God and God sends this fire that not only consumes the water and the sacrifice, but also the rocks. And the people are like, whoa, I guess, uh, I guess Yahweh is God, right? Um, I guess you're right. And that's the height of his ministry. And I love it because Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. Okay, so he's like the perfect person to do it. But then after this, things don't change the way he hoped. Despite the display of power, no one seemed to truly repent. And Ahab and Jezebel, they double down on their worship of Baal and persecuting Elijah. So Elijah, he gives up. He says, what's the point of this? He runs away. He's all depressed and down and God speaks to him and he meets him and he tells him, what's these? I'm no better than anyone else. I'm not better than my father's. I couldn't turn anybody, anybody's heart in Israel back to you. My ministry is fruitless, but, uh, but God calls him to a mountain. And this is the part you might remember. There was an earthquake. There was fire. There was a great wind, all these displays of power, but God wasn't in those things. And then God spoke to Elijah in a still small boy, a still small voice and what he said was, I still have work to you. I still have work for you to do. And what he says is, you're not alone. You are not alone. There are still 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. And I bring this up because we can often feel like we're alone, but it's not true. I mean, life might seem to prove it sometimes. People kick you when you're down. They show their true colors when you're kind of on your way out. They don't give us what they want. We don't even know if we can trust the people closest to us. But the truth is, God never leaves his people alone. And it's why David's gratitude for Barzillai is so important here, why it gets so much screen time in the text, so to speak. It reminds us, it challenges us to remember the times when people did support us, when people did help us, when people did care about us, because we can forget, we can be blind to it. It's why the New Testament repeatedly tells us to be thankful, not just because gratitude is good, but because it forces us to remember the ways that God provided for us through other people. So look around. That's what I'm saying. Look around, not just here, but in your life, it could be here, but just look around. You wear a lot of hats. You bear a heavy burden, but you're not alone. You might think, no one cares about me. Remember the friend who texts you so much that it's annoying to you. Think about, think about the times where your parents were giving you advice because they care about your life and your kids. Think about the church and how they're ready and willing to provide a meal or to ask you how you're doing and to bear that burden, to pray for you, for we are all sinners, as Martin Luther said. And listen, even when people fail you, and they will, remember these words from 1 John 2. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He said to his disciples, I have called you friends. And he will never leave us or forsake us. So maybe just take a moment to acknowledge this. And be encouraged by that. Now, there's a little bit more of our passage, and then we'll close. Verse 41. Then all of the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? 
All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the, of the men of Israel and text. Israel and Judah, you can just hear it in how they're talking. They're fighting over who is more loyal, who's better, who's closer to, to David. Israel wanted to bring David back first, but then Judah is the king's tribe, but then Israel has more people. The fracture between Judah and the rest of Israel will continually resurface throughout the rest of the history of this kingdom. But you can see that the situation, even now, after everything David does right here, is still unstable. David has his work cut out for him. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. It ain't over till it's over. But you know what? God is with him. And this is where we'll end. <clears throat> At the end of the once and future king, it, there are many stories of, of Arthur, okay? But my favorite, I think the authoritative one in my mind is the once and future king. But in the once and future king, at the end, Mordred, Arthur's illegitimate son, he confronts Arthur. And it's been building to a head for a while. And they actually fight a duel, father versus son, and they end up mortally wounding each other. They basically kill each other. And after this, the round table dissolves. Camelot is in disarray. Arthur, before he dies, he calls over Lancelot and he tells him to return Excalibur, right? The sword of King Arthur and to take it back. And the crazy thing is, if you kind of look over the entire story, like you see how things end and you remember how things began. You remember this young boy named Wart who had so much promise, who was to be the true king. And you wonder, how did it end up like this? And in the same way, you think of David, you think of him after, you know, we see him after Bathsheba and Uriah and Absalom and all these problems that are of his own doing. And then you think back to the beginning, what happened to this young kid who stood up against uh, Goliath, who was anointed by the prophet Samuel, who trusted God when Saul was persecuting him, who united the kingdom? What happened to him, that this young man? Well, you know, the story is called the once and future king. Um, because of the legend of King Arthur. And the whole thing is a legend, uh, but the legend is, and I don't know if you know this, but the legend of King Arthur is that one day he will return. It's on like the tombstone. Here lies the once and future king. In the day of England's greatest need, King Arthur will return. Now, I feel like it's probably not going to happen. If he didn't come back to fight Hitler, it's probably not going to happen. It's just a story. But David's story isn't just a story. The promise to David was that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And God promised through the prophet Hosea in the third chapter, verse five, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God and David, their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. See, the prophecy was that David would return and with him, the goodness of God. And he did not the same person, but the same crown. Do you see this? The Davidic king, a man after God's own heart. He was born in Bethlehem. He was crowned in Jerusalem. But this time his crown was not made of gold. It was made of thorns. And like David, many of his own people did not receive him. 
Jesus Christ was and is the true and better David who pardons his accusers, who judges with perfect righteousness, and who acknowledges and rewards those who earnestly seek him. He is the king of all kings. That's why we called this series this, because it's not about David at the end of the day. It's about his greater son, Jesus Christ. So all you who are weary and heavy laden in this room, let me leave you with these words from Jesus himself. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you pray with me? Father, what an amazing thing it is that we can come to you as our Father, that we can come to Jesus Christ as our Lord and know, and know that he wants us to come to him that he wants us to lay our burdens down, that he wants to help us bear them. Every single one of us, we have responsibilities. There are things that you've called us to do, God, but we know and we know with confidence, God, that you will help us to do these things. God, so I pray that you would help us this week even, today even, to parent well, God, to love our spouses, to love people, to be witnesses, to serve others but not by our own strength, but by the strength that you give. God, we look to you, and it's in Christ's name we pray, our King. Amen.